Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. So there's a lot of conversations take place in my house when it comes to parenting. More so in the past than in the present. <laughs> they seem to linger on, they continue in the present because some of those woes of the past really have never been maybe properly addressed as in corrected to the satisfaction. Maybe not so much always of me, my wife, maybe not always so much to her satisfaction, uh, maybe mine, vice versa. You get the point. So when my son was small, of course his room was a mess. Um, <laughs> she wanted it to be picked up, but I think somewhere along the way, as maybe a lot of families fall into this pattern, you, you're picking it up really can't keep up with them messing it up. And depending on how many kids you have, order and having things in their proper place and cleanliness and that sort of dimension, that sort of way that you'd want it to be. Kids don't have anything innately, inherently in them, I don't think, to necessarily keep their surroundings clean. It's one of those things you teach them. Uh, so... Beyond the fact that we were really busy and my son was really active, maybe not hyperactive, but active and made a mess of a lot of things. And with that then, we could only keep up with so much. His messes overtook us keeping up with all his messes. And so we did what we could with the resources we had. He's turned out to be a good guy, a good person, a good man. He's older now, and so woes of the past... Uh, they are just critical, uh, except he's still at home, and we're still trying to get him to clean up his room. Uh, and not only that, but now that he's older and he's capable, not only conceptually, but physically, psychologically, hopefully, capable of understanding what it takes to cohabitate and try to help with the overall keeping the house orderly and not such a mess. He's not maybe as inclined to do that as well. And so this comes back up again. And my wife says, well, when's he going to learn? <laughs> so, so when he was young, it was just easier for me to say, boys will be boys. I don't have such the argument now as an adult. Men will be men. I hope that's not the case. But I have to own my part. I don't know. Am I as inclined to keep things in order as my wife? Is that something that is inherently in men not to be, boys not to be, uh, women to be? I think the stereotype maybe has historically been in a gender sort of specific way that women tend to be much more about cleanliness and order and all those great things and guys are total complete slobs. So, if we were to go with that, then my son, now turning a man, is just following in his father's footsteps. But not only his father's, as I say with some self-righteousness or self-justification, maybe it's just the way men are in general. Now, of course, I'm being a bit over the top, at least with that point. Everything else is true. But with that point, I'm not sure that's true to this extent. That probably precedent and stereotype can become institutionalized. And though it's not genetically in us, maybe, it's not something that's in our genes to be as men, 
uh, correlate with us being messy and slobs. But monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> we do. We example. We model. We teach our kids, whether it's with our words or words and actions, we teach our kids. It's called socialization. And you can put effort into it <laughs> with strategy or you can just be yourself. But if you're what you were growing up and you really don't give much consideration to it and you got that from your parents and what they modeled to you, it doesn't take very long before you figure out this thing not only can be translated or kind of communicated, for lack of a better way of describing it, from one generation to the next, but it can get worse. Pass down. It can get worse as it goes along. <laughs> because once you start moving it in a particular direction, if there's nothing to slow it down, it does tend to vector valence. It tends to build up some momentum and continue to go even harder in that direction until there is a need for a correction or something comes up to, to bring your awareness to the need to correct. Now, what will that be for my son? I don't know. Uh, maybe when he's out on his own, he'll care. I doubt that as much. Uh, maybe he'll get married to somebody who could really impress upon him the need to uh, keep a clean house, keep things in order. Maybe it'll be something else. Maybe there'll be some harm, some hurt, some tragedy that might come from messiness or lack of keeping things up. I don't know. But it isn't happened. It hasn't happened yet. And we aren't there yet. But I could just easily, once again, dismiss it. Men are men. Boys are boys. Girls are girls. Women are women. And that may have held some merit. May have in the past. Although I'm not sure it's valid. But it certainly wouldn't hold much in present context. Psychology Today, August of 2022. When Social Talk Raises a Flag by Devon Fry. Girls on the autism spectrum talk about friends more than boys do. And may have symptoms missed as a result. A girl with autism is less likely to be diagnosed than a boy whose symptoms are equally severe and the way she uses social language may help explain why, a new study suggests. In the study, autistic children ages 6 to 15 underwent clinical interviews compared to boys matched in age, IQ, and symptom severity. Girls use significantly more friend-related words like best friend, or buddy, a difference that may stem from heightened social motivation in autistic girls, says author Julia Parrish Morris, a researcher at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. What's more, girls report more efforts to mask symptoms in boys, and because girls in general use more social language, it may be that autistic girls do the same in an effort to seem neurotypical. The study's expert clinicians still noted social challenges in the girls, but others less versed in autism may assume that a girl who chatters about friends can't be autistic, even if other symptoms are present. Listening to the subtext of a girl's friend or a girl's friend talk could be highlight 
could highlight subtle social issues, Parrish Morris suggests. If she's consistently struggling, it's worth sending her to a specialist. Again, when social talk raises the flag, Devon Fry, Psychology Today, August of 2022, girls on the autism spectrum talk about friends more than boys do and may have symptoms missed as a result. So the article, of course, in the best of spirits, as it is reporting on the original research conducted by Julia Parrish Morris, Devon Fry does the best, <laughs> I want to choose the right word, honors the highest of standards. She reports facts. But all researchers know that research begins with a premise, a hypothesis. And then, not necessarily that you test to prove the hypothesis, but you test to disprove it. Why? Because otherwise, if you hypothesize something and just look for information to establish it, you're going to find yourself, I think probably always, going to find yourself reporting or interpreting it based on what you're looking for, reporting it as you've looked for it, what you thought it was going to be. You're going to look for evidence to support it. When you find it, you're going to say, oh, there it is. That proves it. But when you look for evidence that disproves it, it's a little bit more honorable, less likely that it's going to be sort of self-validating, subjective, and therein errant. So the article's fantastic. It reports what seemingly otherwise, as primary source, is a great research study and project. And there's certainly nothing wrong with interpreting the data. And all of this should be, with probably confidence, the most objective findings, <laughs> the things you can measure most objectively therein, objective findings are going to say. Let's just look at it and, and call it for what we know it to be. And, you know, autism, we don't know all that it is, but we know it is. And how do we know it is? Because objectively we've been able to measure it and there's certain symptoms that go with it and though we may not know physiologically all that goes into it we've been able to at least capture the profile of those symptoms sufficient to come up with what we do in the business we make a diagnosis and one of those criterion or symptoms that seemingly always is correlate to autism, if not always is, high validity, the correlation, is sociability and ability to connect socially. Which doesn't mean people can't connect socially, there's just something inherently implicitly missing in the depth of those relationships and with that maybe more of an intuitive dimension which again now as I'm speaking it starts to get a bit in the weeds we don't understand fully yet but what the study tried to do is compare it by gender men or males and females not men these are kids boys and girls but again on that lines of my intro men and women there may be some gender difference implicit in it why because girls seem to talk more about buddies and more socially sort of advanced than boys, even when it comes to autism or trying to look at it from that frame of reference. 
Now, the article didn't do that. How do I know? Because the article said, well, wait a minute, there may be no difference between boys and girls in that sort of social dimension when it comes to stereotypes, as I again started the podcast. They said, well, maybe it's implicitly, inherently some difference in terms of physiology, psychology, organic, genetic basis, which it may be. We just don't know it yet, right? We can't necessarily study it. I'm sure someone out there is very close to either finding out or at least is on the road to finding out with much more of this objective sort of measure of physiology and what we can do to make psychology or psychological concepts more objective so we can measure them, behaviors, outcomes, things that we can observe and see. Somebody's on the road to finding that out. I don't know that they've gotten there yet. And even the idea of defining or diagnosing autism is not done from some physiological or biological basis. It's done from testing. And what is testing based upon? The rater or the tester's ability, the researcher's ability to administer the tests and observe. And then likely the reports of others who have more exposure to the person. But they put it all together and They norm it and they look for, as the article calls it, neurotypical control group or at least the idea that there's a a normal group that's going to be used to draw some comparisons with this experimental group. They're going to then say, well, this is the difference, but they don't always know what causes it. So the article says, well, maybe there's more to it, so we need to study it more. Perfect. Great. And even though we're looking for, as I tried to explain earlier, the sake of not just looking for data to support our hypothesis, or not just taking the basic or the most simple premise and applying it and then saying, oh, well, let's look at the study or the data from the study and, oh, let's just cherry pick. Let's just pick these things that look like they back it up and then we can report, well, it is. That's not how science works. So again, well-spirited, well-constructed, not only the report of the primary data, but the actual research model, the primary data, primary source data itself, all look sound. But I'm not going to be entirely dismissive of some common sense approach. But I'm not going to say this explains it, except to say sometimes it's okay to take a premise that we know to be true, and already well-validated, and reliably so, making it sound science, as you would replicate the studies over and over again at different levels and different ways. But generally speaking, socialization is powerful. You know, nurture and nature. Uh, I say you know because most of us uh, are probably familiar with that. One of the earliest lessons you learn in psychology is There's a difference, but we don't know which one is more powerful. Some people prefer the whole biology model. It's more measurable and more tangible. Some people will prefer the more psychological or abstract sort of dimension. Uh, Equally measurable, but doesn't have always 
the connections to the physiology and the biology, which then makes it seem more complete. You know, you, you can put your hands on someone's physiology. You can't put your hands necessarily on their psychological identity or sense of self. You have to measure that through their own self-perception, self-reports, reports of others. It gets a little bit, again, harder, more difficult to do, and runs a greater risk of being invalid, unreliable. Uh, reliability kind of falters. Uh, it's maybe the person, but it's also possibly the researcher. Uh, we're not machines, or the people who conduct the experiments, who design the research models, are human. They make mistakes, they're subjective, they've got filters, they've got physiology, they've got all kinds of things that could interfere with them seeing it with clarity. They may only have access to so much data. Somebody else may have different data, maybe it's equally restrictive, but put the two together, it's gonna to be a better picture if only because there's more information that you can look at. Inter-rater reliability is an important concept when it comes to not only conducting research, but interpreting it. If you've got two people coming from two different places, maybe even so remotely as two different perspectives, and they're coming to the same conclusions, you're probably, again, it's a good model, or at least it's a better model, in the sense that you've got two independents. They've never talked before. They've never read each other's research. Or if they have, they've disagreed, maybe even, and they're still concluding. But nature and nurture, the idea that it could be as much physiology as it could be social environment, and then correlating that with socialization, what is the power of socialization? And really when it comes back to autism spectrum, which is what we call it, there's a range of severity when it comes to autism, just how much sociability is there and is that something that's psychologically or physically driven? Or maybe if the person is at least remotely sociable, maybe the data they're picking up because of their orientation is actually what's producing the difference. I don't know if that made any sense. But if girls, even a more basic sort of orientation to socialization, are going to be attracted to something that looks more like them and acts more like them, Maybe they're going to pick up, if it's neurotypical, as with kids and <laughs> girls in school, which I think this article was about, they're going to probably be exposed to the more stereotypical models. Of what? Of that whole premise. Girls are going to be girls. And boys will be boys. Now, is it all socialization, social modeling, social modeling, no, it doesn't have to be all that. And obviously there is such a thing as autism spectrum and people can measure it and there are deficiencies. We know that, we just don't understand it completely and we're still left to measuring it superficially. But we don't know necessarily if there's a difference at that level of sociability maybe I want to call it more basic, that you look at something, you say, which looks more like me? Which seems to be more like me? The girl or the boy? And if you're a girl, you may say a girl. If you're a boy, you may say a boy. Now, I know that doesn't necessarily flow so readily with our current, I guess, <laughs> currents, <laughs> way that things are flowing in our society because we want to say, oh, no, 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 that you're stereotyping, you're projecting, you're culturalizing. And 
I, I get that. We, we should do that on that basis as much so that there's a choice. But we must remember there must be some adaptive benefit or element to that gender role or we wouldn't have gotten to this point in the first place. And if you're going to throw it all out, that's fine, but we'll just have to learn from the experiment, right? We'll have to see how disruptive that could or couldn't be and whether or not we'll be able to tolerate that and you know what that will look like. I mean, it's just a lot of hypotheses right now. And again, we're not looking for data to support our hypotheses. We're looking for data to disprove our hypotheses for it to be true science, just so that if we can't find it, then we're not going to say, oh, we were right, but we're going to say, yeah, we're probably more right, though, than we're wrong in the sense that we've not found anything to disqualify it yet, the premise. But that's not happened in this kind of new, current new way that we're looking at things in terms of gender role. Gender identity. But if we still maintain somewhat of a historical perspective, however we got here, presuming that there had to be some adaptive dimension to it, maybe, maybe the world's changed and maybe you know, it's no longer going to be as adaptive or necessary, but it has been in the past. But possibly the reason autism spectrum disorder, girls with that diagnosis may be more inclined to have those sort of social inclinations, they're hanging out with people who do. And these people who do in a more neurotypical way are influencing them. Maybe it is just basically what looks more like me on the front end of it, but the more you start to hang out with them, the more socialized that you become to the culture the more you're going to pick up the terms and the phraseology. Does it mean anything? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure the researchers do. You know, what does it mean to be a buddy? They just may be hearing that more from that group of people because maybe girls are more, and I think that's also one of those premises that we accept is somewhat valid and, and we've been able to replicate. Girls tend to be more socially advanced than boys do. And again, maybe stereotypically so, girls were more able to express or communicate empathy or emotional, but not saying that autism spectrum disorder girls are, are more empathetic because, again, that's one of those distinctions between the neurotypical and someone who is diagnosed as autism spectrum. But they're maybe going to use the same language <laughs> when in Rome you do as the Romans do. You pick up the culture. You know, you pick up bits and pieces of the language. It's adaptive. It's what we're prone to do. It's what we're programmed to do, maybe on an even more basic level than we realize. That's the, the nurture part. But it's got a nature connection. It's got a genetic connection. We're genetically programmed to acculturalize for the sake of survival. Odd man or odd woman or odd person or odd individual or entity out usually has a rougher go of it. If you can at least find comfort in the masses, they may be all jumping over a cliff. You know. But at the same time, though, at least you feel safe in the herd. Which again is not me saying that you can't be an independent. It just means there's always a juxtapositioning of that, a balancing out of that. Creativity dictates that and there'll be times when people are going to stand out. 
But it probably doesn't want you to stand, mean that you want to stand out too much. It doesn't require you or want you to stand out too much when it comes to the safety and the security factors. And probably the more insecure, unsafe the world is, even if you don't agree with those people that you're hanging out with, you may want to still hang out with them because you need them for food and shelter and primary drives. There's all kinds of layers and levels. But parsimony would say that is probably more innately, implicitly programmed into all of us than even maybe this thing that makes us different when it comes to autism spectrum. We see the same types of things with kids who suffer severe and profound neglect growing up. Reactive attachment looks an awful lot like autism. I think we distinguish that in the sense there's, there is, in genetic terms, at least more confidence that something is being predisposed in, in certain individuals. But if you were just to look at it superficially, people who grow up in abusive, severely abusive, neglectful homes are most likely at greater risk of reactive attachment which means to push away any sort of social advances, to be internal, <laughs> internalized, to withdraw inside of themselves, to be not socially reactive. Separation anxiety looks the same way. <laughs> At times, people become so overwhelmed with their anxieties of being disconnected socially, because it's programmed innately in us, that's the point, the whole podcast, that's more basic than any of these other sort of external sort of expressions of it. But when you start to really interfere or challenge the basic developmental course as with nature or nurture, you're going to get aberrance. You're going to get deviance. Deviance is not necessarily bad. It's just acknowledging these individuals that suffer these extreme circumstances are going to have more difficulty socially connecting. But to know what one it is, we don't have an easy and quick measure. Even with psychological testing, again, a lot of that is self-report and observation. Third parties, others' reports, rather than just the researcher or the tester, the person, the evaluator, I think would be the word that I should be using. Watching, They can't watch them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, month after month for several years. It's just not possible. But the people who are with them, they talk to them. <laughs> they look for things that otherwise seem to be valid in their reports. And if they're saying it reliably, then you can probably at least think in a very basic way, there's some sound dimension to that self-report. But at the same time, we can't jump to the conclusion, though, that there may be a difference with autism, or on that difference the article captures, that it's all caused by some genetic predisposition or some physiological mechanism in terms of girls versus boys. It may just be the social dimension. It may be what you pick up, what you're exposed to. And with that, then, there's a lot to be said for not only autism spectrum, but as I pointed out, now we're starting to get into other things that may be less genetically encoded, 
more socially, maybe more toward the nurture side than the nature side. And we have to accept those might be easier to modify, may not, especially the older one becomes, the more it becomes part of their character, their personality, and once it becomes part of their identity, as with personality, then it becomes really difficult or more difficult to change. It can be changed. You can even modify some of the nature aspects of things just through changing the culture. But we need to recognize whatever we're exposing people to has a powerful influence, maybe even more powerful than the genetics, which doesn't necessarily say, or the, the nurture aspect, the physiology, the, the uh, capability or the capacity dimension of all this. Aptitude and achievement kind of things. So when it comes to the idea of how we address things, it may seem like we need to at least be equally considerate of modeling as healthy a behavior as we can. And if we can't because we don't see it, because we never rightly tested it, took a look at it, conducted our own kind of research on, well, my mom and dad did it this way, why do I have to? Or rather than just being reactive, well, they did it this way and it didn't work for me, so I'm going to be the opposite Maybe we should be teaching our culture and society truly to apply science, the scientific premise. To do that not only in a social sort of way, cultural sort of way, but to do that individually. And I'd be more inclined to say, if we're all doing it individually, then there should be some concurrent validity to whatever it is that's real and what isn't. But if you've got something in the way of social engineering, or you've got something in the way of some centralized sense of power telling you what you are or what you should be, it's probably not going to be as organic as I would like. It's not going to be as objective as I'd want it to be because it's going to come from a group of people who keep thinking in the same way and as I said at the beginning of the podcast, generation to generation without real testing, not only are you going to be more inclined to institutionalize those thoughts, but in that way you're going to teach them as facts and truths, which isn't necessarily the case. That doesn't necessarily mean they are. We need to continue to be open to new data. We need to continue to be open to divergent views. Maybe we need to continue to promote those so we don't get caught up in the bubble, so we don't get caught up in so much the dogma, (laughs) so we don't become so much a part of the stereotype that we can't take in new perspectives or offer new perspectives or be accommodative, that's the word, of new perspectives. We need to continue to test the theory, but we don't need to do that in such the way, though, that we're saying, well, we won't tolerate anything else. We're just going to tell you what it is, and it's all a power play, and whoever it is can tell you what you are and discourage you from doing any of this for yourself. But that's what psychologically speaking, adolescence is all about. You learn from your parents and then you go out and you try to test what you've learned. Does it work? Doesn't it work? They aren't all bad. (laughs) Maybe for me, my aptitudes, (laughs) my capabilities, maybe I'm not my mom or my dad or my parent. 
maybe I need to be myself. But it doesn't mean that everything they say and do needs to be thrown out. Or if somebody might have deficiencies in being able to pick up at a basic level, there's nothing wrong with certainly understanding the power of culture or socialization. And in a more generic sort of way, if we've already established it, then we shouldn't move off of those things that are established with great precedence, at least not in a mass sort of way. Conduct science, explore things. You can test it as many times as you want, but if you keep getting the same results, then if it really genuinely is organic, if it's based on this sort of individual sort of basis of looking at things, then we need to accept that. But we don't need to fight against everything simply because we're going out and testing everything. I, I think every generation recognizes that the next generation is going to test the premise. But it doesn't mean that in testing the premise you have right to blow up the whole system. You can't throw everything out. <laughs> the baby out with the bathwater. Because if you begin to do that in that manner, then you've got to relearn everything again. Which doesn't mean you won't get back there, but... How long will it take? What will be the cost? What will be the casualty? And it does seem like that the easier we could make it, not simply based on, again, some whim or some subjective premise, oh, it's easier just do it this way because I said so. Or we've always done it this way, so just... No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is teach people <laughs> science. Really teach people science, not dogma, not propaganda. If, if schools did that, not the teacher's opinion, not the geographical community or region, the culture in that more immediate way that you were born into and you grew up in, not just national, truly global, but do it the right way. Do it with the right process. But that's the problem, is we don't emphasize that. Or in our passion and pursuit to get to the truth and to correct the wrong, we just blow everything up and then are guilty of doing just the opposite. Falling into the trap of subjectivity. We offer a premise and we look for facts to prove it. No, that's not the way we should be. So I think it's a good article. Again, I think it's good research. I say that for a third time. I trust psychology today or I wouldn't use it as a basis for my discussions on the podcast. And the August 2022 edition, the article by Devon Fry, When Social Talk Raises a Flag, Girls on the Autism Spectrum Talk About Friends More Than Boys Do and May Have Symptoms Missed as a Result, I wouldn't report it to you unless I thought it was sound to begin with. But I'm also saying, though, as much as I agree with the article, I'm just saying there's some things that are even more basic. And we don't, simply because we're looking for something else, because we don't know enough yet about it, or somebody's being very creative, and I'm not casting shade on that. That's a good thing to be creative. I'm just saying, let's test it in some sort of a limited fashion, not limiting the data or the subject matter, or if we're going to do it, let's do it in some sort of a fashion that we add numbers gradually and progressively to it based on the confidences that we have from the initial studies, and that's usually how science starts and begins. You start with samples, you start with expanding that, you continue to norm it. That's how psychological testing is validated. You continue to norm it. You continue to test others. You maintain that, at least some part of that, so that no 
new information is coming in. Nothing's coming up that causes us to rethink it. It's all good. I'm just saying, don't just take a small sample or a limited sample because you can't test it all at once. And for the sake of brevity or the passion to get it corrected as quickly as possible, run out and commit an even worse mistake. (laughs) Be smart. Use your IQ. Use your innate capacity. And that is another one of those things, like sociability, nature versus nurture. You can teach this, the power in socialization. You can culturally override even this. But I think this is implicitly born into all of us. Empiricism is, we may not be able to, in an IQ sort of way, or even an EQ sort of way, be able to grasp it all, But we can test the most basic of premises. And the most basic of premises is division is usually not good for us as social creatures. Division was not good for us whatever the demands or the threats were of our naturalistic environment or we would not be so inclined in an evolutionary way to being social creatures. But you can't dismiss generations of movement toward a really basic premise which is implicitly in us, we're, we're designed to test the most basic at a most basic level, but it's all empiricism. It's touch a hot stove, and if you get burnt, you might touch it again, but if you get burnt twice, the pain will not only probably preempt you're doing it a third time, but you'll learn quickly. But as much as we're able to continue to apply that model, Hypothetical, again, deductive reasoning, research, science. That's what psychology today, that's what these journals are all about. That's what the research studies are all about. That's what I'm all about in my practice. That's what you should be all about. Just even if you're not even even in the psychological counseling business, you should be that way about your life. So that when a lot of other problems ensue, because of this power of social influence or culturalization, even to override those most basic of premises of the hypothetical deductive reasoning, empiricism, uh, or even that basic socialization dynamic. Those are just two examples. There's probably more. We just don't have time to get into an exhaustive list, and I've not sat down and wrote down an exhaustive list before I got on the podcast today. But don't be dismissive of that, but also recognize if enough people say it, That influences, that changes the dialect, that changes the talking points, that alters the perspective because there's power in political persuasion. There's power in social persuasion. There's political in the sense of the sociological dimension of a group of peoples with some idea of trying to, in a general sort of way, keep us all tightly held together. But I'm more, I guess, believing or have more faith in the basic premise of science to keep us together. I don't need somebody else who really has maybe no greater experiences than I, but maybe somebody who's really not sound in science. I don't want them making social policies for me. I don't want them telling me what to do. I would much rather I learn it myself. But if I've learned it and if we've gotten to a point in culture where a a lot of these premises are beyond sort of challenge, you know, maybe you codified them constitutionally, whatever you call it, Bill of Rights, whatever it is, you cannot begin to dismantle that totally 
without risk of throwing everything off. And we'll just see, again, if those, that new research in mass produces something meaningful or doesn't in terms of overriding some of those premises. But you can't say just simply because we're blowing it all up and in an immediate sort of way somebody seems like they're getting something beneficial from it doesn't mean that necessarily it's the right thing to do. Or it doesn't mean that necessarily it's in alignment even with the nature part. And the genetic stuff. The real basic things that are really tied to our adaptive edge in an evolutionary sort of way. We're at the top. We're the highest order on earth in terms of having the capability to influence the entire planet to the point of its own destruction. But don't let that be on the shoulders of a single person or a group of people who are so much in a bubble that they have kind of generation to generation never tested it or they've never experienced it empirically, experientially, and then they're going to go about telling the rest of the peoples who's out there they're wrong. That somehow in one or two generations they've decided it's all wrong and we're going to change it all. Just be wary. That doesn't sound like science to me. I know that's a bit of an opinion, but it doesn't sound like science to me. But when people come in to see me, the good news in that is I can challenge you, not by saying you're wrong, but how'd you get here? And then again, as I've said, probably will continue to say in previous podcasts, future podcasts, saying it today. Test it. Study it. Get true research on it. Identify studies that you know to be valid and reliable, that it's true to the hypothetical, again, deductive model, the highest standard of research model, and make sure that the data that they're presenting is sound. And should they offer an opinion, that's, that's legal. You can do that. Ethical. In science. But you can offer your own opinion. Just you can't move away from the facts and the data, the truth, the veracity, veritability of a particular premise without risk of your subjective overriding your objective and likelihood of that if you don't apply this kind of highest order of rationality and reasoning. We need to be rational and reasoned. It's not all about emotion. It's all, all about some intuitive dimension. Because there's some things that are just pragmatically sound, but we enhance our life. We find, again, vector and valence. We find the valence or the value, the motive, mostly comes out of emotion. But emotion should be always put within the context of rationality or reasoning. Come talk to somebody such as myself, they're going to say that simply because we lead with science. If you lead with science, if you follow the trail the science takes you on, if you're sound, if you talk to others, if you listen to others and their research comes into kind of proximity to yours and you can share data and information and perspective, if you don't let your emotions or your passions precede you, if you're not reacting only emotionally, and kind of in that same sort of a way, when you're a child, there, you get a pass on that. Because kids don't have that highest order of intellectual capability organically. 
psychologically in terms of operational systems, cognitive operations, psychologically defined operations to be able to really apply science. But when you get to that age and you have the capacity and you don't do it, that's condemning. <laughs> you're not going to get, you're not going to live in reality. But that's my message. And even with the severe conditions such as autism spectrum, I think we can do much in terms of believing that though there may be limitations in sociability, it doesn't override all of it. And we can teach in more pragmatic ways practices that are healthy. And even if there's really, it takes a while to really get the fullest understanding and maybe it never will come for individuals with that particular diagnosis of what it is to be socially connected. There's a lot of individuals with autism spectrum, not only at what we used to call Asperger's, mild, but to the more severe range that can function socially. They may not have the social communication skills and there's a vast difference between severe and mild in terms of impairment, but I think socialization, if done properly and based on science and common sense and all these things we've talked about on the podcast today, that can be helpful. But when we've got things like even reactive attachment, or we've got some separation anxiety, or we've got a history of abuse and abandonment, uh, neglect, people can learn. It's just more difficult the older they are because it becomes part of their identity and personality. But we can test a thesis and we can come up with a strategy and called a treatment plan. We can begin to apply interventions to make modifications and we can conduct really that interaction can be conducted empirically, scientifically, and it's sound. And if we've done it the right way, then your neighbor and across the street, next door, across the street, state over, country over, whatever it is, if they've done it the same way, we're going to find universal truth. But we're not going to find it by not testing it. We're not going to find it by living in a bubble. Or we're not going to find it by not challenging in the right measure away at that individual level first. Fix it in yourself before you go about trying to fix it in other people. And what do we need to fix? The greatest flaw, I think, in our society or culture today, where, where it seems to be all being thrown out the window, is we're not practicing science. We're preaching science, but we're being hypocritical. We need to be with, do that with more integrity, have more integrity. We need to have more of that integrity. And I think what we'll find is less psychological problems. I think that'll be corrective. There'll still be need. But not everybody's going to be blowing up every psychotherapist's phone as they are now wanting help. And the psychotherapists, some are better than others at practicing what they preach. So we just need to realize we're starting to show some wear at the seams. And uh, it's important we do our part individually. That's why I do the podcast. That's why I try to bring this message. Is that if we can do it this way, then I think we're going to find our societies better. First, we're going to find ourselves better and our society being better. But that's why I want to invite you back to the next podcast. And what is it? (laughs) You're listening to Word. 
with Dr. Michael David Clay. And when I say I wish you not only good health, but good mental health, I sincerely mean it. <laughs>